Hey everyone, before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to remind you that we have a ton of extra content over on our Patreon. We do movie watch parties, special Patreon bonus episodes, and all other sorts of wacky stuff that you can access easily if you head on over to patreon.com slash filmwhiskey. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, everybody. Welcome into the Film and Whiskey Podcast. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we're coming at you with another special bonus episode. Mm, bonus episode. Now, Film and Whiskey Nation, I am, uh, I'm going to level with you here. We try to be honest with our, our fans, Brad. This was, this was not a planned bonus episode. It this wasn't? was something that came up uh, very last minute. And it came up at the last minute because there's a few people in our whiskey drinking lives, Brad, that have... Not just an open invitation to come on the show, but an open invitation to send me an Instagram message and say, hey, I need to come on your show sometime in the next like 10 days. And I say, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, that person is on the other end of the line here. It's our friend Zach Johnston from Uproxx. Zach, how are you today? Hey, guys, I'm doing really well. I got a glass of whiskey here and uh, a soundtrack in my heart. There it is. Yeah. So here's here's the deal today. Zach is joining us because... He's he's promoing a very special bottle that we'll be sampling in a minute here, but it's a bottle that's being released in conjunction with the Grammy Awards, an awards show that has been mentioned on this podcast exactly zero times before, Brad. Yeah, the Grammys are a thing that happens every year. Pe- <laughs> people watch it and awards are given out. You know what? Like I'm I'm my mind is so <laughs> solely focused on the Oscars this time of year that Zach was like, yeah, we want to talk about the Grammys. And I was like, was that was that a typo? Did you want to did you mean Oscars? <laughs> He's like, no, man, I meant Grammys. So we're going to talk Grammys today. This is really fun because I feel really out of my element. But we're also going to say, yeah, we're going to break down some movie music, too, to try to tie it back into things anymore. I just assume that Taylor Swift wins all the Grammys. Yeah, is, she cleans up, not, man. Is that not true or? <laughs> I think she's at least like nominated for some, right? She did. I think she did just come out with another album this year. She well, broke uh, Ticketmaster. I know that much. I, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and to be fair, the Grammys do award film music uh, some little trophies. So absolutely. A little crossover there. Can't win an EGOT without the Grammys. That's what mm-hmm. I always say. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so. so We'll be uh, one half the way to EGOT. Next time I come on, we'll talk about the Tonys. And then uh... <laughs> <laughs> there it is. We'll round it out with the Emmys. Zach, yeah. I am so happy that you're joining us today. And uh, let's just jump right in here, man. So first of yeah. all, I want to talk about the fact that Uproxx is working in conjunction with the Grammys to release a special bottle. And I guess my first question is just like, why now? Why the Grammys? Like of all the award shows that you guys could partner up with, uh, where did this kind of partnership start? Uh well, it was sort of fortuitous in that uh, my boss, uh, Jeremiah, uh, he's spearheading the uh, street style walkthrough into the Grammy. So like Uproxx is uh, bringing a whole bunch of street style into the sort of walkthrough all the uh, nominees go wow. through. And um, 
basically he's choosing, you know, fits for shoes and different and for streetwear and things like that. Lots of art, very up rock style uh, because we're doing Fresh Pair, which is a show uh, that has been spearheaded over the last year or so uh, through up rocks where you know, we bring on people like Redman, Redman and we give them a like a really cool one off pair of sneakers for just him that are handmade. Um, oh, that's cool. And that's just displays and it's a cool show. So that sort of segued into us doing the style walkthrough at the Grammys. And then the sort of cherry on the top of that is we're going to be handing out uh, a select few of these bottles to some of the nominees as well. And um, sort of being our presentation to the world as a brand that's doing barrel picks through that. And then there'll be some for sale also uh, via National Barrel Company. So that, you know, the average person can also try it as well, as opposed to a nominee at the Grammys. So what I hear you saying is since we have a bottle of it, we can now refer to ourselves as Grammy nominee, Bob Book <laughs> and Brad G, right? That, that's correct. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, yeah exactly. You're, you're, you're part of the, the elite crew. You didn't have to uh, wait online and try to hit it at the right moment to uh, buy a bottle. Brad, as I always say, uh, you and I, part of the elite. <laughs> you know? That is... I mean, <laughs> what else would anybody say about us, Bob? It's the, the Ohio Mafia, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> All right. So you've mentioned the the company that you've been working with once now, but I want to talk a little bit about Nashville Barrel Company. This is the very first product of theirs that we have ever had on our show. I've got a bottle sitting here right on my desk right now because you were so lovely to send us a bottle of it. Uh, Brad does not have any because this bottle just got to my home on Friday. And so uh, as part of the elite, I get to drink this whiskey and comment on it. And Brad does not. Yeah, I was say, I'm, I might be a part of the elite, but it sounds like you're part of the one percent, Bob. That's true. <laughs> That's very true. But I want to talk a little bit about this company because I've heard so many good things about them. A lot of the people that we follow on Instagram have picked barrels with them before. I've never heard a bad word about any of the barrels that anyone's tried from them. Uh, Zach, can you give me a little bit of background on this company? Yeah, and it's sort of like I've uh, been working with Michael Hens, who's the uh, owner of Nashville Barrel Company down in, of course, Nashville, Tennessee, uh, for a couple of years now, just, you know, really enjoying their work. Uh, the very long story short of it, they're pulling in barrels from Indiana, largely MGP, but some other places too. They bring them down to Tennessee and they do a sort of final aging there so they'll they will warehouse them before they take them over to their nashville location where they have a uh, uh open to the public consumer facing uh warehouse where people can go in and they can try different barrel picks from different uh people who have picked barrels whether they be influencers podcasters people in the industry and literally you know the cosmopolitan hotel in vegas or marriott or Hus or whomever and then also as a consumer, you can do a barrel pick with your crew if you want, and you can walk away with, you know, 180, 200 bottles. In essence, Nashville Barrel Company sort of is finding those MGP barrels that everyone wants so, so, so badly because they're between five, four, five, and eight, nine years old, now getting to 10 years old. Mm -hmm. And he's, Michael Hins has this magic touch where he somehow is getting the best of the best, where I've you know, gone through on multiple occasions and tasted 10, 12, you know, 14, sometimes even 18 barrels in like, you know, a couple hours. Everyone is good, but everyone is a little different. And it's just this wonderful thing where I don't know what magic he has, but he is getting incredible single barrels of whiskey down there. And so for me, it was like a kind of like a no brainer fit for us in that 
because you know when you do a barrel pick uh, with a company, you need to do two things. You need to represent where you're getting it from. So like if if we did a barrel pick with wild turkey, for instance, you want it to be recognizable as wild turkey, but with your fingerprint on it as sort of the, the secondary part of that. Um, so in picking this barrel, I wanted that tenacity, but I also wanted it to be something that was quintessential in that when you tasted it, you're just like, this is a, you know, bourbon nose turned up to 11. This is a bourbon body turned up to 11. This is a bourbon finish that just puts a cherry on the top. Hmm. Well, I mean, I can say, you know, speaking from experience over here, man, uh, this thing packs a punch. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the barrel that you picked in particular? Yeah. So uh, I think on the day we went through six or seven different barrels. And this one stood out specifically because of the beginning, middle end was very clear. It's a six-year-old, well, 6.2-year-old barrel, five years in Indiana, 14 months in Tennessee aging. Mm. Um, it's a high rye, 21%. The uh, proof is 118.16, so 59% ABV. Uh, and yeah, it was, you know, it's a, it's an MGP from Indiana. So it's not like, you know, we're hiding behind you. It was this or that, um, that got a little extra aging in Tennessee. And so it's a six plus year old and, uh, we got about 180 odd bottles out of it. And I liked it cause it was on of the barrels I tasted that day. It was sort of on the lower end as well. There were some that were nearing hazmat levels in the one thirties that just, uh, we're a little too bold because, as I said, that secondary thumbprint that we need wanted to put on this as an actual uh, NBC pick was that you know a lot of the people who are going to be tasting this, you know, in you know the hip hop community or the streetwear community, you know, whether we like it or not, they're used to blends and things that are proofed down pretty far. Mm -hmm. So we didn't want to go too crazy with this huge, you know, beast of a burden, bourbon, beast of a burden, beast of a burden <laughs> that uh, you know would be too. Uh, unapproachable and i felt with this even though the abvs were on the higher end you know we're still just under 60 percent and it for me it doesn't play as a heat bomb on the palate too much no and you know i've been sitting here just nosing it for the last five minutes or so and i have to say you know when you kind of go around like your tasting wheel and you're looking for different things or, or kind of you know smelling for different things when you're doing your nose this is like Every single component is represented here. It's crazy how right. complex this nose is there. I, you know, I got red apple and then I took another nosing and I got peach and I took another nosing and I got bright cherry. Uh, but then there's like there's even something on this that is like I very rarely get anything on that sort of like herbal or vegetal side with bourbons. Yeah. But it reminded me a lot of fresh thyme. And I like I never get a note like that on a bourbon. That's usually something, you know, maybe on a rye, definitely on something from overseas Like it, it has that sort of herbal note to it. And then you kind of come back around and I was getting just like vanilla, like a Bavarian cream, like vanilla pudding kind of. Yeah, uh, right. It's really, really complex. Uh, you picked a good one, man. Yeah, Bob, you're getting all the things I'm getting. That's for sure. <laughs> Uh, Brad, I apologize that uh, it hasn't gotten to you yet, but you are getting some. So that, that is a-okay. A Zach, I will never uh, impugn your honor here, but Bob's, on the other hand. <laughs> I, I have none left to impugn, Brad. <laughs> Speaking of having no honor, I also have no social uh, relevance. If you haven't noticed, uh, I, I am, I'm a bit of a loser, Brad. Your, your uh, star meter is yeah. a, a little down. I read this article like a year ago where they, they basically have scientifically proved that at the age of 27, 
people stop listening or caring, caring about new music and they start thinking music in my day was better, which is really <laughs> crazy to me because it's like you're nine years removed from high school and you're already like music these days. <laughs> Uh, and and I have to say, like, I'm pretty much tipping into that realm now where yeah. I don't necessarily think that music is worse these days. But I think the proliferation of like Spotify being a driving force behind people getting on charts where every week there is a new artist who has a number one single who has never yeah. charted before in history. It's really hard to keep up with trends nowadays. And so I look at this list of nominees from the Grammys and there are some recognizable names. And, you know, obviously I'm looking at record and album of the year right now. Like there's some legacy people on here. There's ABBA, you know, um, I see a Bonnie Raitt song on here. Adele is showing up, obviously. But when it comes to like some of the more contemporary artists, like I'm looking at it and I'm like, all right, I know Harry Styles and that's kind of about it right now for me. <laughs> like, I see a Taylor Swift over yes, there. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Eliza. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. As you guys like peruse the list of nominees, is there anybody that stands out to you or do you feel as out of touch and old as I do? I feel 100% out of touch and old. Although uh, one of my best friends, Matt Cowman, he introduced me to a rapper named Toby Nuigwe. Okay. And he is on the list for best new artist. Oh, there and you so go. I just saw his name and was like, oh, I've listened to his music. Maybe I'm not so uh, <laughs> long in the tooth anymore. That's so yeah, funny. Man, I mean, I, you know, it's sort of, it all depends, right? Like, listen to Jack Harlow every now and again. Mm -hmm. And like, I feel like I say, oh, I listen to Kendrick Lamar, but he's been around kind of forever now, too. Um, but uh, yeah, I sort of tend to listen to a bit more country as well. So it's like, if I listen to like Brandy Carlisle and like, you know, Chris Stapleton, like they're putting out new music, but it sounds old. So I don't know where that falls. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I'm still perusing best new artists. I think I've heard of like two of these artists. Like it's just crazy okay. how quickly I went from feeling about like the top 40 to completely out of the loop. Like uh, old age has caught up with me very quickly. And I think that this episode has very abruptly gone from like, let's talk about the Grammys to uh, Bob's existential midlife crisis. But uh, the Grammys are a really good indicator <laughs> of that for me, apparently. Uh, Brad, let's steer out of this skid of not knowing anybody at the <laughs> Grammys this year. Let's talk about how this pertains to the film and whiskey podcast, because I thought Zach came up with just a brilliant idea. He said, you know, we, we want to link it to the Grammys somehow. So what if we do a top five movie soundtracks or top five movie scores? And I am all about that. Yeah, I was going to say the the thing that always will help me stick with a movie longer than anything else is the music. Like yeah. if, if a movie has an incredible score, I'm I'm 100 percent in. I don't know about you, Zach, but that that's something that's always oh, stuck it. out to me. Always, always. And a little sort of background on me. My first two years of college, I was a music major. Oh, nice. And so I sort of was down going down that path for a long time in my life as an adolescent and young adult. And so music has always been one of those things that keyed me into film, especially, uh, you know, we, we got to all grow up really lucky, obviously, with John Williams, which we'll talk about. But also, I feel like there was less of it at, when we were growing up. So it stood out more. 
uh, you know, there are just fewer films that, you know, in the 90s and even the early 2000s as there are compared to now. So you could really like hear something special and it would stick with you and you would get the album or, you know, download it. And, you know, you would actually, I remember listening to soundtrack albums all the time. Um, and not just, you know, like the pop song side of it, but like the orchestral side of mm-hmm. it, um, you know, and it, so it was always a big part of me growing up and being attached to film was the music through the film. And, you know, there's so much, I mean, every genre, every style, like, you know, where do you want to begin? Where do you want to end? You know, we can find, you know, some nuance in there that probably speaks to somebody. Yeah. And I'll say it, you know, today we're going to be getting into the scores and the soundtracks, which Bob will explain the difference in a second here, but we're probably not going to talk about one of the most well-known forms of music and movies, which is musicals. But if you want to hear us talk about musicals, we just did that like two weeks ago, Bob. We sure did. Yeah, we were talking with Jared Dixon, who is uh, a spoiler alert, I guess now, uh, about to take on the role of Aaron Burr on Broadway in Hamilton. And nice. we did our top five movie musicals then. So, yeah, we get to check that off the list a little bit. And that makes uh, at least my list a little bit easier. So we decided to let Brad do his top five movie scores and I'm going to do my top five movie soundtracks. And I realized that as we were parsing this out a couple days ago, Brad, that, you know, the the line between what is a score and what is a soundtrack is often blurred. I think people try to use those words interchangeably. So maybe we should give like some definitions for what we mean by score versus soundtrack. Yeah, essentially a movie score is a primarily orchestral uh, piece of work that, you know, moves throughout the movie. And obviously there's individual tracks to the score, but it, it's overall, you know, sound music that is played by an orchestra. Think uh, Star Wars, right? The Star Wars theme song and all, all of the music in Star Wars is a orchestral score. Uh, a soundtrack, though, would be Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. So like a soundtrack, generally speaking, is recorded music that is then used in a movie. It's music that came from outside the movie, or it could be like the original songs that they write for the movie. So, you know, one of the great soundtracks that it's not on my list, but we should talk about is uh, Top Gun. Right. And I heard I read a lot of articles this year about how the one thing Top Gun Maverick was lacking that Top Gun had was a really great soundtrack. There were only, I think, two original songs in Top Gun Maverick, whereas uh, the original Top Gun is just like Kenny Loggins turning it up to 11 with Danger Zone. And then you get Berlin with Take My Breath Away. Like those are soundtrack songs. But uh, the the score, the that's that's the score. It's the music that's written uh, instrumentally to accompany what's on screen. So soundtrack is things that come from outside the movie. And the score is things that are written to accompany the movie. I I, I guess I hope that makes sense. But Brad and I are going to break down our top fives. And then I think Zach also has a list. I don't know if it's like a mishmash of both, but uh, you're playing wild card here today, my friend. Well, yeah, exactly. So uh, I'm going to throw some wild cards in there at the end. And uh, hopefully it'll be some good conversation because, uh, again, we're talking about music and film. I mean, what's not to love? Right. Now, again, this is not meant to be some sort of like comprehensive, the top five ever written kind of a thing. It's more just like these are our favorites slash ones that we really appreciate and would like to talk about. So, Brad, why don't you walk us through your top five first and we can uh, critique you mercilessly while you go through it? I think you might have a hard time doing that, Bob. (laughs) All right. Let's put it to the test. So 
I will say, I could easily put five John Williams movies here and just be done with it. Yeah. But I limited it to one movie franchise. Ooh, which, which? I mean, I know mine from John Williams, but man, that's hard. <laughs> oh, man. Well, we'll get there in a second. He He's a little bit higher on the list than five. So th- for my fifth pick, I, I went with, who somebody who I think might be the second best composer to him. Uh, I went with Hans Zimmer for Interstellar. Nice. Okay. Okay. Because I I just think that the work he did, I mean, he took like two years working with uh, a famous organ in London to to compose this soundtrack. And it's I, I don't know. Does the music from Interstellar stick out to you guys in terms of all time orchestral scores? I think it's one that people have really latched onto, like, especially from the last decade. Obviously, I mean, it was only around for the last decade, but like there haven't been a lot of movie scores that have like hit the zeitgeist in the last 10 years. And I think people have really gotten into Hans Zimmer and people really like listening to Hans Zimmer while they study or whatever and Mm -hmm. listening to him use the organ in a way that like the organ hadn't really been used in a long time. Yeah, I think Interstellar is definitely one of the most famous and popular scores of the last 10 years. Yeah. It, if I was going to pick another one from Hans, it probably would have been Gladiator. Mm. I, I think the score for Gladiator is killer. But yeah, that's, that was a good one to study to in college, let me tell you. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, I agree with you on uh, Interstellar. I also think it was one of the better Nolan soundtracks in that it was subtle and nuanced in a way that his other ones had this, you know, the big bombast and big, you know, sort of like, <laughs> like a, like a like an early aughts action movie would have, which is fine in and of itself. But Interstellar does have a timelessness to it for sure. Yeah. Well, that's my number five. Number four, uh, I am going to go way in the other direction. Uh, I'm going to choose Dario Marianelli with Pride and Prejudice. Oh, wow. Oh, OK. I, I just I've seen that movie one time music. now. You have seen it one time. Zach, have you ever seen 2005's Pride and Prejudice? No, I have not. Is that the one with Kira Knightley? It is. I've not seen that. I'm. I apologize. I no, I. I missed that one. It is incredible. I, I absolutely love the movie, and the music in it is one of the largest reasons why. Okay. Wow. That's a hell of a endorsement. Yeah. <laughs> I have nothing. Nothing further to add. I can't remember a <laughs> single thing about the score to that movie, Brad. Bob, just go home. I mean, I'm, I'm, listen, I'm trying here. Number three, you're going to like this one a little better, Bob. Number three, I am going to go with Ennio Morricone, the good, the bad, and the. There you go. There it is. Dude, the score as they are having their showdown is simply the one of the most epic things to ever come out of an orchestra ever. And it, and it just lives in my brain constantly. Oh, yeah. I, I tried to tell you when we watched that movie how good that scene is. <laughs> it's cr- like, dude, it is so crazy because I feel like that movie builds for about two hours and 40 minutes to that one scene. And it is like, I mean, Brad, I, forgive the use of the word here, but it is like an orgasmic sequence of yes. just like... <laughs> I have never had such a buildup of tension release in such a cathartic way during a movie than like that scene works every single time I watch it. It's insane. And how much of that is Maricone's music? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yep. It's just 
it is that sort of it is kind of an orchestral release in this weird western way i mean it's such a and it's also iconic i mean it is one of those things that has become you know so parodied and also homage to a billion times over and it is so much of our zeitgeist now that it is almost i don't know it's like you it's like imprinted in our brain almost well and and not only that but the opening theme song is like if you think about an old western that's the song like the whistling that happens in your brain is is that i i don't know how he did it but morricone in this is it's one of the greatest scores of all time hands down yeah no argument for me man yeah. All right. So number one and number two were so incredibly difficult for me because I think that, like I said, I think John Williams is the greatest composer of all time. But I put him in my number two slot and I did it for the Star Wars franchise. Okay. I, I'm not going to pick one movie because all of them are incredible. I, I think that. Yeah, I think that's fair. Like at all of the little themes in the in the movie, whether it's, you know, Han and Leia's love theme or the TIE fighter fight, you know, fighting the X-Wing battle music. It, he just knocks almost every single song out of the park. But I will say, I think my favorite Star Wars track is the fight scene from episode three. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, oh, yeah, like I love Duel of the Fates. It's incredible. But there's some there's an emotional weight and and gravity to that fight between Obi-Wan and Anakin in episode three that I, I think it might be one of Williams greatest scores. And I also think like what's in, brilliant about Williams, but, but brilliant about those scores is the prequels say what you will about them. The music doesn't suck ever. No, like that is I mean, obviously special effects at the time, blah, blah, blah. But that's. The second and third, or episode two and episode three, phenomenal soundtracks. Yep. Yeah. So that so John Williams takes my number two spot. Bob, can you guess my number one? I have Ooh. no idea. Like, if you're not going to choose John Williams, then I, I don't know. Uh, once again, I'll, I'll give you a little clue. It's not just one movie. It is a franchise. A franchise. And it's not John Williams. No, it's not. Huh. Is it? I was gonna say Harry Potter. That's John Williams. Uh, no. I'm gonna go Howard Shore, Lord of the Rings. 100 correct. Yeah. If I know you, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this might be the end of our friendship. We're no always like, you know, we're always like top five slapstick comedies, and Brad's like, I'm gonna go with one of the scenes from The Shire in uh, yeah. <laughs> Lord of the Rings. There's you gotta weave Lord of the Rings in somehow. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know it I, honestly. I think that you bringing up Harry Potter, I think that Harry Potter is one of the greatest integrations of music and and world building. But I think that Howard Shore is the best. Like I like you literally cannot read Lord of the Rings, think about Lord of the Rings like you can't do anything but think about the music. And I think that Shore is did the best job of any director ever of creating a world through sound. Mm. And I, so for me, Lord of the Rings is easily my favorite movie score. Nice. Yeah. I mean, again, it became so indelible through the early aughts. I mean, that was another one where you put that on when you go for a run, you put that on if you need to get some work done, you put that on when you need to chill, like it just becomes part of your life. Yeah. Yeah, man. I, I have no arguments. That's a good top five list, Brad. 
Thanks, man. I appreciate it. I uh, I will open the door for you to critique me now because I'm doing top five movie soundtracks. And Zach, you kind of alluded to this a little bit. I really do miss the days, first of all, where we would like go to the store and buy physical media. But I have a very vivid memory of being at like Kmart, which dates me and <laughs> and looking through the CD racks. And there was uh, the Forrest Gump soundtrack which oh, sold yeah. millions of copies. Like it was like a multi-platinum album. Yeah. And because it was so many songs, it was a two CD soundtrack. And so it came in that like extra thick CD case. Thick thick with two CDs. Before they learned to like okay. build a case that you could stack CDs, they had like two separate cases that were bound together. Uh, man, I just have such vivid memories of like buying movie soundtracks because it was, you know, it was like somebody making a mixtape for you of all the best songs from this era that went into this two and a half hour movie. I just kind of missed the days of the movie soundtrack. I mean, yeah. we we just talked about it a few weeks ago. Oh, brother, where art thou? Yeah, like, exactly. like the soundtrack for that is incredible. And I think that is a really good point, Brad, because I started making my list and I realized there's different kinds of movie soundtracks. There's you know, songs that are written just for that movie. Uh, there are songs that are, you know, part of like a musical. And I think Oh Brother Where Art Thou is kind of like in between those two, where it's not quite a musical, but there's enough songs performed in the movie that were written for that movie that you could kind of consider it a musical if you wanted to. And then you've got ones like the Forrest Gump soundtrack, which I would kind of call an anthology soundtrack. And I didn't really include one of those on my list because it's almost unfair. Forrest Gump is a movie that spans like four decades. And they're just like, hey, remember this song from the 1950s? Hey, remember the 60s CCR in Vietnam? And like, you know, it's just it's almost cheating to include 45 songs in a soundtrack because then it's like, well, of course, I'm going to put Forrest Gump in there. Uh, and then there's also movies that I think do kind of what Forrest Gump did, but they they pick, you know, 30 songs that encapsulate one specific time instead of spanning 50 years or whatever. And I've got a couple of those on here. And I actually that that takes me to my number five and my number four. Uh, number five, I'm going to go with the soundtrack to a movie that Brad did not care for that much and that I love very dearly. And that is the movie Almost Famous. I think that mm. Cameron Crowe's uh, I mean, Cameron Crowe's a musical genius like he worked for Rolling Stone and everything else like he knows his deep Led Zeppelin cuts. And I really love some of the cuts that he puts on this soundtrack, you know, to play the movie off with uh, Tangerine is such a brilliant, brilliant touch. I love the soundtrack to Almost Famous. Almost Famous. Almost a good movie. The the uh, the whole reason everybody loves Tiny Dancer now is because of that movie man, and because of that cut. I mean, that I'm sorry, that record uh, needle drop. Yeah, 100 percent. All right. OK, so it sounds like no pushback yet. I'm going to plow ahead here. Uh, number four, I'm going to go with the soundtrack to George Lucas's American Graffiti, which is another movie that I just watched again. I mean, I've seen that movie 10 times, but I threw it on over the summer again to remind myself of like, what does a John Williams or John Williams, George Lucas movie that isn't Star Wars like? And I was just so impressed with how kind of like loose and shaggy. Uh, it reminded me so much of a recent movie by Paul Thomas Anderson called Licorice Pizza, which I loved. And uh, I, I think that's such a great double pairing between those two movies. And the soundtrack, that 1950s soundtrack from American Graffiti is just like banger after banger. I absolutely love that movie and that soundtrack. Yeah, I mean, the sort of 
I've not seen the movie that many times, maybe twice, three times, but I've actually listened to the soundtrack way more than I've seen the film. <laughs> because at the time, again, I had it on vinyl in the 80s, 90s. And because I had it on vinyl, it was you could put it on. And it's like, like you said, every track is something you know. It's like having an oldie station on without the commercials. Yeah. Which back then, you couldn't get radio without commercials. So it was sort of like two birds on the stone. Brad, any any comment on American Graffiti? You know, I watched American Graffiti when I was like 14 or 15, and I remember being confused but enjoying it. Mm. <laughs> if that tells you anything about 15-year-old Brad's, uh, you know, cinema taste. It's a lot of movie. Like, it's just a lot. Yeah. And so, I, but honestly, the the soundtrack doesn't stick out to me. I don't remember it super well. But... It is something I've wanted to return to sometimes, so this is just a good reminder that I need to get back on the uh, American Graffiti uh, train. All right, number three is like peak 90s for me. And when I say that, it's because in the 90s, we did this thing with movie soundtracks where it was like, we're not going to have anybody sing in the movie, but we're going to outsource the songs to like the top 12 current artists in the the world right now, and they're all going to write a song and we're going to put it on the soundtrack. And whether it's in the movie or not, no one cares. Go buy the soundtrack. And, uh, you know, I thought about doing <laughs> I thought about doing Batman forever just so I could get Kiss from a Rose by Seal. <laughs> but the rest of the soundtrack kind of sucks. So I went with one that I listen to to this day, and that is the soundtrack to 1996's Space Jam, uh, which is truly <laughs> and honestly banger after banger after banger and uh some Dude. of the some of the bangers are more problematic than they used to be so we're not going to talk about uh, uh i believe i can fly but you've got <laughs> you've got basketball jones with chris rock for some reason showing up you've got uh, the the title song welcome to the space jam like there's just so many great tracks on that soundtrack it never fails to pump me up man salt and pepper Bismarcky. Yeah. yeah. I mean, th- this is just, it's the greatest, man. And I yeah. still get Seal because he's doing a remake of Fly Like an Eagle on there. <laughs> I don't I don't think I knew that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, that's another one I haven't thought about in a long time, but that used to be a banger. Yeah. All right. Number two, Brad, it's one that I, I like. My number two and number one are, are very obvious, but they're also undeniable. And this is the kind of soundtrack that, again, took over the world in the 1990s, but it's because it was uh, entirely new music written for a Disney musical. And that is 1994's The Lion King, a soundtrack that owned my life for eight, (laughs) nine years there. And the great thing about The Lion King soundtrack is that you have the performances that you hear in the movie. You know, you've got Nathan Lane and and whoever played Pumbaa uh, singing Hakuna Matata. And then you've got all the Elton John versions where it's just Elton John singing those songs. And then they also have like four or five tracks of the Hans Zimmer score in the original motion picture soundtrack. Like it is just everything you could possibly want musically out of The Lion King is on that CD. Yeah. And it's short, isn't it? Like it's uh, the movie was short. So the soundtrack wasn't that long, was it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure like the soundtrack with all those additional tracks is like as long as the movie. Right. You know what I mean? It's like it's like an hour and 20. You're in, you're out. But you hear five versions of Hakuna Matata. And, and that what more can you ask for? <laughs> I actually have a vivid memory of seeing the, the trailer for The Lion King, like way, you know, I can't remember which movie I was even seeing. But it was one with um, where Elton John's like. Like just comes in with that like amazing song and like you see all the animals going towards the sunshine. It was almost like a teaser and just being like, wow, back in those, you know, back in the day, it was like, oh, my God, Elton John's doing the you know, a Disney movie song. And it was like a, amazing. And so you had to go see it just for that. 
Yeah. And that's the thing about like my number two and number one is that I think sometimes when you want to appear like not just cultured, but just like, oh, I'm in the know, you don't pick the obvious thing. And, you know, I thought about talking about how back in like 07, the soundtrack to Juno was like something that took over college campuses because it was like, here's how you can be quirky and, and have little yeah. ukulele covers of everything. And, and and that in itself became its own fad that everyone hates now. But like I thought about a movie like The Lion King and I'm like, am I really going to put the soundtrack to Juno of all things on my list over <laughs> the freaking Lion King? Like it's just there's a reason that a million, you know, 10 million people probably bought that album. And it's because it's absolutely fantastic and there's no denying it. And I think the the prime example of that is my number one. And it's going to give me an opportunity to talk about something I've never talked about on this podcast, Brad, and that is disco because it's Saturday Night Fever. Like, holy cow. One yeah. of one of the yeah. I think still to this day, one of the top 10 best selling albums of all time. And here's the thing. I'm really glad people are finally starting to reevaluate disco music. It took 40 years, but over the last five years or so, we've gotten a, a Bee Gees documentary. People have like. I think started to kind of adapt some more of those disco-y sounds into their music. Bruno Mars did this for a little while. The thing is, if you know your music history, then disco music is a natural progression out of the R&B and soul that we had in the 1960s, especially from oh, yeah. Motown. And I think, you know, the issue that a lot of people have with it is very similar to, Brad, what you and I have talked about with Elvis, like appropriating black music and the Bee Gees are these, you know, Australian guys doing it. But they made incredible music. And when you listen to the grooves and how in the pocket these bands are, it's it's insanely good. You put on any one of those songs, whether it's Night Fever, whether it's How Deep Is Your Love or, you know, Staying Alive, obviously, that album has I, I want to say that album had like six or seven number one hits on one album. Like it's it's an insane collection of tracks and there's also, there's no denying it. Also, it has one of the greatest puns of all time in the title, A Fifth of Beethoven. Yeah, there it is. Like, come on. That's just freaking <laughs> killer, dude. It's it's fantastic. I mean, that is an an amazing film of its time, of course. I mean, it's got some... I don't think people also realize how crazy that film is and how dark it is. Yes. Um, but also, I mean, going looking at the music purely, I mean, you don't really have hip-hop in the same sense as a mainstream thing without the Sugar Hill game, which yep. is a disco song. Yep. Where, you know, these guys from New Jersey took this Bronx sound and matched it with disco and made a, a massive hit worldwide where everyone listened to, you know, uh rap for the first time in 1979 on a wide scale. And so, you know, and that kind of I was thinking about that with Elvis as well, because that's why I love the Elvis soundtrack uh from Baz Lerman's film, because it kind of brought it all full circle mm -hmm. by, you know, Baz like specifically going back to the Beale Street community and to the, and to the African-American community and being like, hey, let's take these songs and bring them back in again and uh, sort of, you know, find something new there uh, that was interesting. All right, guys, uh, it's time for Zach to blow the rest of us away with what I'm sure is the best top <laughs> five here. But hit, hit us with your top five, Zach. So I'm going to go a little of best of both worlds from both of you guys. I'm actually going to start off with John Williams um, in the bottom slot of my top five. And um, I got to go with Superman. Like, it's just sort of like you can say whatever you want about Zack Snyder's Superman movies. His biggest mistake was not using John Williams score. 
like because that score is so iconic it, you watch those opening credits from the 1979 movie with you know the the, the names of Marlon Brando and Mario Puzo yep. like Gene Hackman zooming through space and you're listening to this it's it's like a grand march yeah from like of the Wagner era and but it's also got this wonderful sci-fi aspect to it and it's just you know John Williams being kind of weird too yes and kind of romantic and also it's just sort of earlier in his career so he isn't quite as dialed into some of the uh repetition he has later in his career like if i'm going to go for a run like i'm going to put on superman soundtrack yeah even indiana jones and i love indiana jones as you know especially the raiders march i mean that is one of my favorite of all time as well but it's really that you know that opening scene in superman of just that and again i admit this is nostalgia as well you know it's born in that era i grew up with that movie but it transcends and you know say what you will about the uh superman returns at least it had the good sense to use john for <laughs> a minute but yeah that's where i gotta start this sort of and that i think primes you for where i'm gonna go <laughs> bob we need to just do an episode on on john williams because like I was sitting here today listening to a bunch of his his music and I'm just like weeping listening to Schindler's List oh, God, and like yeah. his his theme from that yeah. and I'm listening to Jurassic Park and just like just uh, he just is incredible and we need to do an entire episode on it. Here's him. what we'll do. I'll say it right now. <laughs> We're going to bring Zach back on the show. We will okay. we will power rank John Williams Ooh. themes. Oh, yeah. And like, and now, we can't have separate lists. We all have to come up with one power ranked list. Now, can we ke- can we put the Olympic theme song on? That? Hell yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this man right, wrote a theme sure. song for the Olympics. Like, have you ever stopped <laughs> to think about how crazy that is? Like, yes. Yes, I have. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's fantastic. I am so in. Yeah. I'm, like I said, I like would. I agree with Brad. Like, I, you can make the whole list of your top five and just drop Williams scores. Mm-hmm. He's so part of our lives. Even if you're not an avid cinema goer, you've heard his music at theme parks. You've heard it in TV, commercials, everyday life, on the radio, on your phone, on somebody else's phone, just in a bar, whatever. You've heard mm-hmm. his music mm-hmm. as part of your life. All right, Zach, let's do it. Number yeah. four. So go into my other sort of cinematic upbringing and i have to go with the kubrick movie and um kubrick did so much amazing stuff between the the synth and clockwork orange and the ridiculousness of the shining soundtrack but i'm a big eyes wide shut fan and i know that's a controversial hill that uh i'm probably going to die on and part of why i love eyes wide shut is the music in that film is just phenomenal it's kubrick doing his absolute best needle drops best work with um jocelyn pook who did the soundtrack and so you know the the sort of weird organy sort of like chanting music you hear as tom cruise is walking through the orgy you know that's her uh, writing the score which is so unique and then you have um just you know Shostakovich showing up and Grigor Legetti's piano nonsense you know craziness and mozart's requiem and just these this it the whole thing comes together so cohesively to tell this you know kind of New York fairy tale story um, in a way that it really sticks out. I mean, just fairy tale. 
<laughs> that's a that's a pretty pretty strong description of eyes wide shut. <laughs> well, you know, old school fairy tales are pretty dark. That's true. That, that's, that's true. true. That's true. <laughs> I always do have to skip the orgy scenes when I'm reading Aesop to my six year old. You know, <laughs> uh, touche. But uh, you know, it's just that one of the things, like that. You know, I've. I was in the, I guess I wasn't in the minority when it came out. People forget when that movie came out, people loved it. Critics loved it. It was a huge hit, like made tons and tons of money. And, um, you know, and then it had its because of the Spielberg cut as opposed to the Kubrick cut and blah, blah, blah. But still, it's one of those movies where the music just stuck with you and it was parodied and it became part of the zeitgeist. And, you know, you saw it on the Simpsons and blah, blah, blah. But, uh, I just, you know, that that film's music just, I feel, is something that became a bigger part than the movie alone. Nice. All right. Moving along. Number three. Yeah. And this is sort of, I don't know, uh, I kind of feel like I can go really esoteric here, but um, I'm a big fan of Rainer Fassbinder, who is uh, a very... I don't want to say avant-garde, but very uh, eclectic, yeah, eclectic <laughs> filmmaker. He was the sort of person he made like you know seventy films in thirty years or twenty years or something. He'd make like two or three films a year. He just had this machine going in Berlin and in Germany that was just like boom, boom, boom. He could make films back to back to back to back to back, mm-hmm. and a very utilitarian, very socialist-minded, anarchic. Um, but also he would do mainstream stuff. Like he did Berlin Alexander plots in 1980, which was this big mini series on TV. Yep. So it wasn't like he was only doing, you know, you know, Cassavetti's level, you know, weird plays on film. He was doing everything. Uh, a lot of social commentary, of course, of the time, but one of the films that I've sort of love is actually a TV movie It's called Bal B A L. And it's, um, Fassbender doing Bertolt Brecht. And uh, the composer of the soundtrack is Volker Schlorndorf. And it's this sort of music, just type in Bal 1970 soundtrack uh, when you go on YouTube, everybody, and press play. And you'll see where Tarantino got all of his inspiration mm. for his early films, like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, because it is that funky 1970 thing where, you know, there's kind of like this dude who's smoked too much cigarettes, kind of singing clumper jazz music over like funky 70s stuff. And it's just one of those things where it's uh, you feel the value of Fassbender and his, you know, machinery of filmmaking come through in the film nerds who started making films based on the 70s. Um, I can just see like all of the analytics department at YouTube being like, why are all these people searching for Bal 1970s <laughs> soundtrack all of a sudden? Like, <laughs> Yeah, where'd this come from? Right. But but it also in general, like because Rainer Fassbender made so many films that you know some of them were again very esoteric. Some of them were you know some of them were mainstream. So you know just like Rainer Fassbender in general, it's sort of like this slot is more for him than any specific soundtrack. Just look up Rainer Fassbender and watch his movies. <laughs> Zach, I know. Literally nothing about Rainier Fassbender besides what you have just told us. However, I did Google him, and upon looking at the first two pictures that came up, I have decided that you like him because I think you kind of look like him. Oh, really? Holy I, I think you guys have a similar vibe. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I, I definitely had my moments where I was a... Uh, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. 
<laughs> uh, especially, I mean, I lived in Berlin for 14 years, so there's a you know connection there as well. Um, but he's a he's a fascinating, fascinating filmmaker. Um, you know, sort of just nobody has since uh, or even before been able to create as much as he did. And obviously, he burned out and crashed pretty hard. But mm-hmm. um, when you're making three or four movies a year, that's going to happen. But it's just fascinating stuff, so indicative of time and era, but also completely universal in its themes and messages, you know? Yeah, I don't think people understand what all goes into making a movie. Like, I, I always encourage people to watch the entirety of the credits for Lord of the Rings. Right. And just, like, think about how many names are on that list to to make those movies. Yeah. But the idea of making three to four movies a year is just mind-boggling to me. That that is insane. Yeah, I mean he he had a hell of a crew and he had uh, you know a hell of a drive, but it's sort of that's sort of again you just got to go and dig in and sort of find because you will it, it, he made so much you will find a, a groove where you're kind of like okay I get this guy now and then he'll do something abstractly like ah, I don't get this guy anymore. <laughs> you got to take like a year off and then come back and like tiptoe back towards him and being like. Okay, let's try this again. <laughs> All right, we've got two more from Zach. Let's let's hear your top two. Um, so I'm actually this is gonna date me again. I mean, I grew up in Seattle in like the late eighties, early nineties is when I sort of you know came to be who I was. So this is actually keying us back into the Grammys as well, because a nominee this year for score and soundtrack for visual media, as the Grammys call it was the Michael Giacchino soundtrack for the Batman. Oh, nice. And the reason I love that soundtrack is because it's all based on a Nirvana song that drives the score, which is a throwback to especially 70s and 80s movies where, you know, you'd watch like Officer and Gentleman. And the score is basically just teasing you, uh, Joe Cocker and Linda Ronstadt at the end, Up Where We Belong. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and that's the same thing that Michael Giacchino did with something in the way, you know, obviously coming in early in the film, but then teasing out the soundtrack the whole way through, which is an old concept that, that you don't see as much anymore. Like you don't really see like, like even if you look at a musical, like a star is born, like shallow, isn't the soundtrack that's teased out throughout that film. Right. It's just a song in the film. Um, and I just, I mean, I just not like bat the Batman's my favorite movie or anything, but I really, really enjoyed that soundtrack because I used Nirvana in a way that just hit me in the uh, feels. I love that. Yeah. And Brad, I don't, we haven't talked about the Batman at all yet, but uh, it's nice to see uh, Giacchino getting some love here. He's just like, I think he might be the best working composer today. Everything from, you know, the Pixar, when he did up that, uh, that theme from up that everyone always quotes is, I mean, it's just brilliant stuff, man. Yes. And I mean, it's sort of like, how could he not win a Grammy for that? I mean, and just his work in general. I mean, listen to the Ratatouille soundtrack. Yeah, listen exactly. To the listen to Coco, man. Like, to listen to Ooh. Coco and try not to cry. And that's him. Yep. You know. Yeah. Um, I was say, Bob has a great story about crying during Coco, but we'll, <laughs> we'll get to that to an, another day. Yeah. Don't we all? Yeah, right. All right. But, uh, you've got one more left, man. We've been uh, We've been teasing it for a while here. So hit us with yeah. your number one. And, you know, it's sort of, I don't know, man, I like, there's so many I wanted to do. Like, I was going to put Ennio at the top, but, um, you know, it was sort of like, you know, that's, that's, you know, Brad did that way too well. So I'm actually going <laughs> to go 
kind of postmodern with a PTA movie called The Roby Blood and Johnny Greenwood. Nice. And uh, that's again, you know, PT Anderson, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson has always had an eclectic sense with soundtracks, whether, you know, it's punch drunk with that, you know, the sort of like giving you a heart attack while you watch the movie. We mentioned licorice pizza and the, the needle drops in that are phenomenal. But I kind of feel like he hit the peak with their will be blood because Johnny Greenwood somehow takes the depravity of that early doggy dog capitalism and kind of pulls the strings of the, the violin and the cello like through your soul yeah. as you're watching you know henry plainview and the peach tree dance and you know the just all his just angst and anger but also like the the love that's there and like you know when you rewatch that movie it could almost be a silent film just with his score oh 100 um, because you know the, the dialogue is there and it's, there's nothing wrong with the dialogue it's not like it's you know adolescent or anything like that but the dialogue is is so sparse and just daniel day lewis's performance and also the i am so sorry i forget the kid's name who plays his son his performance is so good like when they when he tries to burn the cottage down and he sort of chases him out but he's still so drunk you can't chase him and he stops and he leans over and you hear the fire and you hear a little bit of music when he starts running after him again and they go behind the bush and it's just sort of you know it's uh just for me, an excellent score. And it's also, I mean, Johnny Greenwood, I mean, Johnny Greenwood's going to probably make some good music given where he comes from. Right. I agree there. Uh, but it's another one of those things like we could just talk about PTA scores and ranking his movies music. But I do kind of feel like the Roby Blood is the most like stick with you. Yeah. I mean, we talked about it when we did our episode on There Will Be Blood. There is there's something to how just unsettling and eerie and, and dissonant and discordant mm-hmm. that music is. Uh, yeah. And, and they know when to use it and when to make it be completely silent. And, you know, the, the incident at the end of the movie that gives it its title has no score underneath it. And I think that right. a filmmaker that knows when to use music to its fullest effect and that sometimes not having any music is using music to its fullest effect. Uh, I mean, it's, it really is a match made in heaven between those two. And I think that's a great pick for number one, man. Yeah. And it's sort of like, it plays a little bit of homage to my other, one of my other favorite scores from Kubrick, which is the shining where you have those like, you know, out of nowhere, like string streaks, yes. screech, and, yep. you know, and you're just like, Oh shit, what a, what's, what's about to happen. Yeah. You know? like, <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody, there you have it. We've got top five soundtracks, top five scores and Zach's, uh, I mean like grad level syllabus on really cool stuff to listen to. I really look forward to checking out some of those because I haven't heard all of them. Brad, once again, this has been an enlightening conversation with our friend, Zach Johnston. Yeah, I, I am genuinely so, so excited to have him back on to talk some uh, John Williams. That that will be an incredible episode. But Zach, thank you so much for coming on today, man. I, I'm i excited to try some of this uh, whiskey as soon as mom gets it to me. But <laughs> Well, gentlemen, I can't thank you enough. And it's, as always, a wonderful conversation. Yeah, make sure to check out the Grammys. They're coming this Sunday, February 5th, 8.30 p.m. on CBS. Make sure to check out Nashville Barrel Company. I know I will be. This is some phenomenal stuff. Brad, I can't wait for you to share a sip with me. Yeah, and also, make sure that you keep reading Zach Johnston. 
He is the drinks editor over at Uproxx and just continually pumps out incredible articles about the world of whiskey. Thank you, guys. I appreciate that. All right. We will be back on Monday with another regularly scheduled episode. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. George B. Stagger, back again to delight your ears with a 60-second whiskey appraisal. Today's episode is brought to you by Doc Swinson's. The legendary blending wizards over there have created for us an incredible new addition to their exploratory cask series, the French Toasted. This delicious pour is a straight bourbon whiskey finished in French oak casks, and my oh my is it the bee's knees. The nose is a bombastic balance of butter and pecans, with vanilla and oak on the side. On the palate, you've got some incredible caramel mixing with notes of orange creamsicle, rich cheesecake, and black pepper. To finish things off, we've got a nice Kentucky hug to go along with a punch of pepper and oak. There is some long-lasting flavor here, folks, and I'll be darned if Doc Swinson's didn't knock this one out of the park. It's that good, folks. Head on over to your local speakeasy or go to docswhiskey.com in order to partake in the hottest juice in town. Until next time, this is George B. Stagger signing off.